Uh, Mark chapter 10. And so if you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 10. We have a pretty well-known text today that we're going to go over, but just because it is well-known does not mean that it is known. And so there is a lot um, in our text today. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13, and we are going to go all the way to verse 31. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. One, uh, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said, to them again. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, we have a lot to cover uh, in this text. This is one of my favorite stories, and I'm sure that it's uh, for you as well. Um, it is so rich, and it's so deep. But uh, let me start by just having, telling you up front, we have two groups that we're looking at, okay? Two different moments here, two different groups that we're going to see interact with Jesus. In the first group, we see them in verse 13. It says, they were bringing children to him, more accurately, babies. They were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So our first group is babies. You see in this text that a group of people, perhaps their parents, are bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples start boxing them out, right? I mean, picture the scene, right? They start boxing them out. The disciples don't want the babies near Jesus, and so a natural question is, why? That seems weird, right? Jesus, you saying the disciples and Jesus hate babies? Well, no. In this culture, babies were viewed as insignificant and useless for society. Simply, babies don't contribute. Babies were, are nothing but need, and your baby is cute, right? But your baby isn't going to stand up here and play guitar. 
right? They need you. They are nothing but need. One rabbi said famously during this time, wise men should avoid three things, morning sleep, midday wine, and the chatter of babies, okay? Uh, And the disciples here essentially say, get those babies out of here. They are a waste of time. But Jesus will, as he often does, take what we think that we know and what is right, and he will flip it upside down. In verse 14, it says, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. So he's indignant, he's firm, he's passionate. He says, no, bring those children to me. He says, the kingdom belongs to people who are like these babies. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms. So we have to ask the question, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean that if we are to be like a child, if we want to receive the kingdom of God, then we are to be like a child? Well, he's not saying that you should have childish behavior or that you should even have simplistic thinking or an immature faith. The key word is in verse 15, that word receive, okay? Babies Children are completely dependent on someone else for survival, that in order to survive and be satisfied, they need guidance, love, and care from someone outside of themselves, and we are no different. That children are the perfect picture of who we are before Christ. We are weak. We offer little, but our dependence is completely dependent on someone else. And we have to approach God with that kind of mindset. If we want to receive the kingdom of God, we have to understand that we are completely dependent on him. Like, do we want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Do we want to be part of one of his children? We have to come with empty hands, humble, with nothing but need. God, I can't do this. I have nothing to offer you. I need you to care for for me. I need you to save me. And Jesus says, so that kind of person, the kind of person who knows their need, that who the kingdom belongs to. Pick me up when I'm crying, feed me when I'm hungry, care for me because I can't care for myself. And so here's the question that we need to ask ourselves before we get into our next moment. Are we aware, day in and day out, of our need for Jesus? Do you feel your need for Jesus? Or do you feel apathetic towards him? Are you distrustful of him? Like every morning when you wake up, do you feel it in your bones that you need him? You need him to sustain us. Too many of us go through life too comfortable and honestly too bored. We go from one distraction to another trying to find some sort of happiness and satisfaction and none of it works. And we all go through life with this deep feeling in us that we need something else. You ever felt that? Like something's missing in my life. I I need to be happy. I need to be loved. I need to be cared for. This is why we waste money on things that we don't need, right? Because we think if I can build a life that fills my needs, then I will be happy. But in the middle of our desire, desire for comfort is the reality of this feeling that something's missing. There is a need. We don't feel loved. We don't feel happy. We don't feel cared for because something is broken. And I wonder, before we get to our next moment, how many of us have just gone through this week and you've just been exhausted? You've just been exhausted because you're constantly trying to fill your life with things that just can't satisfy. I think these two stories are purposely put to it next next to one another because God wants to show us, no, 
You need me. You are completely dependent on me. And so that's our first group. The group that receives the kingdom of God is the group that knows their dependence. And then now we are introduced to a man who is the polar opposite. He's the polar opposite of that group. Let me read verse 17 again. It says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Mark gives us little information about this guy, but all three synoptic gospels give us this story. Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler, so he has some kind of authority and influence. All three gospels tell us that he is rich. So this is the guy that if you ask every single person on the planet, who do you want to be? What do you want in life? If they're honest, they would say, I want to be like this guy. I mean, think about it. What do people strive for? People want to be young. People want to be rich. And people want to have power and influence. People want to be well thought of. And that's this guy. This guy. This guy has everything on the surface going for him. Now, we don't know much of this in Mark yet. He's going to tell us that he's rich later. All we know in Mark in our text is that he's earnest. That's what we see here. This guy is earnest. I mean, he runs to Jesus and he kneels down. And then he asks him a question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when the rich young ruler addresses Jesus as good teacher, we get a little insight on how this guy really views Jesus. Okay? Um, and for the longest time, Jesus' response to that question confused me. I wonder if it's confusing for you because like, on the surface level, it looks like this guy is asking Jesus a legitimate question. He's on his knees asking a good question that we should all be asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him this little snarky response. Well, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And you're like, okay, Jesus, you're being a little harsh here, right? What's that about? There's a couple things here. There's a couple things about how this guy addresses Jesus that, that are strange that we need to understand. First is that this guy calls Jesus teacher, which means rabbi, which is a partial truth. He is a rabbi. He is a teacher, but it's not the full picture, right? And it gives us some insight on this guy's misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Remember Mark 9 through 11, book ended by the two blind men being healed. This whole section is about seeing Jesus. Do you see him? Do you see who he really is? And he says, good teacher. Remember a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 8, what did the disciples say the crowds who, uh, what did the disciples say that the crowds thought about Jesus? He says, who do, who do they say that I am? And they say, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. Now there's one of the prophets. And now our boy comes to Jesus in Mark 10 and says, teacher. What does that tell you? It tells us that this guy thinks that Jesus is a man. He's a man. He doesn't call him Christ. He calls him teacher. And more than that, he calls him good teacher. That way of addressing a rabbi, it didn't happen. You did not call a rabbi good. You didn't, it just didn't happen. Nowhere in no literature during that century um, or around that time was any rabbi called good. In fact, if you read through your Bible, anytime after Genesis 1, especially after Genesis 3 in the fall, there is not one time when man is called good. Not just a rabbi, man himself. Man is not called good at any point after Genesis 3. Only God is called good. Yet, this guy comes to Jesus and he says, good 
teacher. And this guy reveals something about his belief system when he does that. It reveals that he believes a man can be good. So with that close in mind, pay attention to his question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see it? As if there is a lifestyle that we can live that can make us good enough to inherit eternal life. The assumption is that if I do something, then I can claim eternal life for myself. So Jesus is going to respond to the guy's question, but more specifically, he is going to respond specifically to this guy's assumptions. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus, it's fascinating. What he does in this moment is he begins the process of reconfiguring this guy's belief system. He essentially says, you have a misunderstanding about the goodness of God, about the nature of goodness. You think that goodness is something that you can achieve. Your understanding of goodness and badness is flawed. And this guy should have realized what Jesus was alluding to. I mean, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, it should be on the screen. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Think about that. Any in the whole world, any who seek for God, seek after God. And verse 3 says, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I mean, this guy should have realized, right? Oh, you're right. Goodness is an inherent quality of God. Only God is good, and man is not. There is no one who does good, no, not one. So if goodness is a core quality of God, I, as a human, do not have it. Jesus is pushing against the moral game of, okay, if I do these certain things, if I follow these rules, then I will be defined as a good person. But goodness is not defined by how well you follow rules. Goodness in Scripture is defined by how you relate to the good one. Goodness is defined by how you see Jesus. Goodness is defined by him, not us. We can never claim goodness for ourselves. We claim it in him. This guy is thinking good action, and Jesus is helping him understand that it's not about what you do. It's about what you believe, who you believe me to be. That our goodness can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's something that we receive. It's not something that we earn. And so Jesus asks the question, why do you call me good? And he, we don't get his response. We don't know if he responded, they didn't record it, or um, if Jesus just went right into the next thing. But regardless, we don't get his response. But Jesus steps into the role of rabbi regardless, and he begins to teach, them in verse, teach him in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And it's interesting, Jesus lists the second half of the Ten Commandments. Okay, The commandments that we can measure ourselves on how we are doing in life. And you can picture the rich young ruler, right? Take your mind there. You can picture the rich young ruler standing there, thinking to himself, okay, have I ever murdered anyone? Well, no. Have I ever committed adultery? No. Have I ever stolen it? No. Now, we know what this guy's answer should have been, because it would have been well known at this point what Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, right? Well, you may not have murdered someone, but have you had anger in your heart? You may not have committed adultery, but have you ever lusted after a woman, but what does this guy say? He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That is a statement right there. That is a statement. He claims that he has upheld the law since he was a child. But it's interesting. 
Uh, this is an interesting little Bible tidbit for you. Um, if you look at how your Bible is laid out, the book of Deuteronomy is known as the book of the law, okay? It's, it's the book that teaches you the character of God and the law of God. That book is followed by Leviticus, the book that teaches you how to sacrifice. And that's not an accident, okay? Because God knows that we cannot uphold the law. We, the law reveals our sin. And since we cannot uphold the law, we are not holy. We have fallen short and we cannot enjoy the presence of God. Therefore, we need a sacrifice, something to wipe us clean, something to bridge the gap between us and God so that we can be at peace with God. So in the Old Testament, you were supposed to read the law and despair that you can't keep the law. And then you were supposed to go to Leviticus and offer a sacrifice to be at peace with God. And so this guy stands in front of God in the flesh and claims, think of what he's claiming here. He's claiming that he has earned his righteousness. But did you notice, did you notice, even though he is claiming his righteousness, he's still asking the question. He's still asking Jesus for assurance that he will inherit eternal life. Why? Because he knows. He knows that something isn't right, that something is off. He's us. We try so hard to earn the kingdom of God, but at the end of the day, we are so tired, we are exhausted because we know deep down that our efforts will never be enough. We can't earn it. And there are so many believers trapped in exhaustion, the exhaustion of legalism, the exhaustion of work, where if you do your quiet time in the morning, you are excited because you feel like God is smiling upon you. But if you miss your quiet time, you feel like God hates you, right? This is the Reformation. It's Martin Luther. Right? It's how he, that's how he thought. You have no assurance because it's all based on what you do. And so this guy, he comes to Jesus and he says, I've done them all. But he has no peace. He has no peace. He knows something isn't right. And I love verse 21. The very beginning says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. I mean, drink those words in. This guy, he is completely blind, and so are we. We see our works, we see the world, and we miss him. And even in his blindness, Jesus has compassion on him, and Jesus has compassion on us as well. It says, looking at him, loved him. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Hey, rich young ruler, everything that you think makes you worthy, give it all up and follow me. What's Jesus doing here? Two things. First, Jesus is trying to get this guy out of the mindset of earning. He's trying to get this guy out of the mindset of earning. This guy has earned his reputation. He's earned his money. He's earned everything he has, and Jesus wants to crush that. He wants him to repent not only of the bad things like murder, but also the good things. That time and time again, we use the good things of this world to mask what we all know in our hearts, that something is off. That we all, we have these little saviors that we think make us righteous and we hold them up to God and we go, see, I've kept all these. I've done this. For some of us, it's money. For some of it's beauty. For some of it's career or the perfect family, these things that we think make us valuable to God. And at the end of the day, we're still exhausted because we know that something still is missing because we can't earn the kingdom of God. 
Like when you enter the kingdom of God, when you enter heaven, when you enter eternity, how foolish will you feel if you hold these things up to Jesus? Hey, look at all these things that I've done. I bought my place here. You come receiving like a baby, completely dependent. You come with empty hands, celebrating nothing but his grace. So yeah, we repent of blatant sin, the, the hate, the bitterness, the, 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 the lust. But we also repent of our attempt to stack up all of our good deeds in an effort to earn the approval of God. Jesus looks at this guy, he says, let go of it all. He's getting this guy out of the mindset of earning. No, no, no. You come follow me with empty hands, like a baby, completely dependent. The other thing that's interesting about this moment is that Jesus focuses in on this guy's wealth specifically. And many people have used this passage to say, don't you see that we just need to all sell our stuff? Right? No one should have anything. Jesus said so. So why tell this guy to sell everything? I mean, honestly, it seems kind of harsh, right? Like, couldn't Jesus just have said, hey man, sell 10% of your stuff and then come follow me? He says everything. I'm sure he wishes he was Peter. Hey, Peter, come follow me. Um, I guess I'll leave my net over here. Okay, Jesus, I'm ready, right? Like, it's easy for Peter. (laughs) But he says everything. Why is Jesus doing that? Jesus is shifting the conversation to what really matters. And what matters is not moral action, but the heart's affection. Jesus says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And what's the thing that he lacks? It's not just about selling his stuff. It's much deeper than that. Jesus looks at this guy and he's essentially telling him, I want you to look at all your stuff, everything that makes you you, and I want you to look at me and I want you to declare, I'm better. I'm better than everything else in this world. I am absolutely more glorious, more wonderful. The hope that I have, the joy that I have is better than anything you can buy any influence that you can have. Jesus isn't looking for morality. He's looking for a kingdom of people who will say, you are my king, you are my treasure. So I will sell everything that I have for that treasure. Christianity isn't about a list of rules. It's not about do this and don't do this. Christianity is looking at Jesus and proclaiming with our lives, I do believe that you are better than anything else. And so that means when he asks us to give up everything, we say, gladly, with joy. Like, ask yourself, here's an honest question. What does your heart beat fast for throughout your days? Like, what makes you excited? Like, when when you think about your day in and day out life, what, what brings you joy? Maybe it beats fast for a certain sin. I mean, seriously, that, that, that in those moments, that temptation for that sin looks really attractive. Like lust, or bitterness, that the thought of feeling that way about that person, that makes you feel good. Looking at that thing, that makes you feel good. The hate, the, the, the anger, the, the lying. Jesus says, you got to kill that. Or does your heart beat fast for good things that are lesser than Jesus? Man, does it beat fast for money? You can be honest about that. 
Does it beat fast for money? Does it beat fast for influence, for the perfect family, for the perfect circumstances? Are, and does your heart beat fast for King Jesus, for the glory of his name? You might say, okay, answer the question, Colton. Is he really asking this guy to sell everything? Is he really asking? Because that seems kind of crazy. Well, what Jesus is asking here is actually not that crazy when you think about it. We expect this in our relationships. Every romantic comedy, did you know this, is centered around someone giving up everything for someone else, right? Let's do an activity. Girls, ladies, women, sorry. Um, Picture your wedding day, okay? Picture your wedding day. You're dressed up, you're nice, and your husband is standing there, and he begins his vows, and he proceeds to tell you, I will love you for the rest of my life as long as you don't touch my money. You will be a solid number two right behind my bank account. Ladies, what would you say? Bye, get out of here, right? Jesus isn't asking this guy to do anything that we don't ask from each other, right? You're not going to see that on a Hallmark card. You're not going to see that in a movie, that Jesus doesn't expect anything different from us, that he asks for as disciples, all of us. All of our time, all of our money, our possessions, our thoughts, even our future, to look at everything and say, Jesus, all I need is you. Only you can satisfy. And so here's the deal. Even if Jesus came to you and said, hey, you want to be in my kingdom? Sell everything right now. Sell your house, sell your car, sell your stuff, sell it all. Do you think that if you did all of that, it would earn you a place in his kingdom? No, that's the same problem, right? You're not going to earn it. Doesn't matter if you did just decide to sell it all. That wouldn't earn you a place in his kingdom because it's not about your stuff. It's about your heart. It's about your affections. It's about what makes your heart beat fast. Now, can he or is he asking you to give up some things? Is he asking you to sell all of your stuff and move? I mean, maybe. He might be. I mean, for some of you in here, that's a real issue. You have put your desire for wealth or your desire for stuff above him. And so could he? Yeah, he could. May he be? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but he could be. Could he be asking you to sell your stuff and move to an unreached people group across the world that have no access to the gospel? I hope so. I pray for it. Sorry. I hope so. I pray that God would raise families to go. But is he? He could. But the point here is not about the stuff. It's about this guy's heart. And the rich young really, he can't do it. He can't do it. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. If you picture this moment in your head, it's a heavy moment. I mean, you can literally picture the guy's face drop to the ground. That he looked at his comfort, his prestige, his money, and he said, I choose my stuff. He has convinced himself that his stuff is better than Jesus. And so the question I think we all have to ask ourselves is, what's lacking in my life? What does the Spirit bring to your mind? If Jesus were to look at you and said, you lack one thing, what would that one thing be? Maybe it is a sin that just absolutely has you trapped. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a good thing that wasn't created to be bad, but you've made it into a little Savior. Where when your love for Christ and your love for something else comes into conflict with one another, which one will you choose? 
When it happens for this guy in Mark 10, he chooses his money and his possessions, and then Jesus is going to dial things up here. It says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed. They're shocked. Why? This was contrary to their understanding of money. Wealth during this time was a sign, and it still today can be in certain circles. Wealth was a sign of the blessing of God. If you are moral, you get prosperity. If you do what God commands you to do, he will bless you. And Jesus says it's hard for the wealth, wealthy, for the rich, to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like, wait, what? What do you mean, Jesus? So Jesus sees that, and he dials it up again. He says in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now, some people try to make sense of this passage, okay? They'll say one of two things. Uh, and so I wonder if you've heard this. Well, Colton, it's not a literal needle. Jerusalem's walls had these really narrow gates, and it was really hard to get a camel through them. So, And if the camel was carrying a heavy load, it was even more difficult. But if you took the load off, and the camel held its breath, and you gave it a push, you could get him through. It's very hard, Colton, but it's not impossible. Or they'll say, well, it's not a literal camel. The Aramaic word for twine sounds a lot like the Aramaic word for camel. So what Jesus is really saying is that it is very difficult to get twine through the eye of a needle. If you've ever heard someone explain passage in one of those two ways, that is just plain wrong, okay? That wouldn't have made the disciples exceedingly astonished. What made them exceedingly astonished is that Jesus actually said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciples were like, that's against everything they've ever thought. Then who can be saved? It says, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. He says, and it's important, no man can do this. No man can do this. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't earn the kingdom of God. No work can make your heart treasure him more than anything else. You do not have the ability to love something that you are incapable of loving. Try to love calculus, right? For like the five of you, you're like, oh, easy, right? You've got a calculator for Christmas, right? For the 99% of us, we can't make ourselves love calculus. <laughs> it is only through God that we can enter the kingdom of God, and it is only God who can change our hearts. Essentially, Jesus is saying here, for that guy to love me more than money, it's impossible. It cannot happen. It's the same for us. In your own power, you cannot save you. You cannot give yourself a new heart. But God can. And you know what else God can do? God can take a rich person, transform their heart, and use that person for his glory. With man, it's impossible for that rich man to love God. They will use that money for their own glory, for their own selfishness. But with God, all things are possible. And that's the point, that the rich person would look to God and say, all I have is yours. And if he were to ask you to give it up, you would, because he's better 
than all things. I mean, okay, here's an example. Consider Lydia. Anybody know Lydia? In Acts 16, go and read it. She is one of the first members of the Philippian church. The text says that she was a seller of purple goods. That's just another way of saying she was really rich. Okay, this girl had multiple houses, probably. And in Acts 16, she's studying the scriptures, and God opens her mind to understand the gospel. And later on in Acts, we learn that the entire church, the entire church, we don't know how big it was, but the entire church was meeting in Lydia's house. He has the power to transform whomever he chooses. We don't, we're not told that God asked Lydia to sell everything, but he used her life for his glory. So whatever's lacking in your life, you can't overcome it. You do not have the ability to do it. You cannot choose to be done with bitterness or lust or being addicted to money or power or influence. You cannot do it. You cannot white knuckle yourself into holiness. So you say, okay, what do I do? I hope what we do at the end of our time today is we pray. We pray. Ask God, stir my affections for the only one who is good, that he is objectively more better than anything else in your life. Ask him, God, change my heart to see you. You can't do it, but he can, that you would go with empty hands, fully dependent on him. And he says, for those like that, I will receive them in my kingdom. I love verse 28. It says, Peter began to say to him, he's watching all this go down, right? Probably a guy that he wanted to be. He says, we've left everything and followed you. I love this moment. I mean, and what I love about this moment is that Jesus does not condemn Peter for, ask, for saying that. He's, Peter's asking a genuine question. He looks at this guy who probably is someone that Peter's always wanted to be. And he says, Jesus, we did it. We've left everything and follow you. And Jesus doesn't condemn him. He doesn't get snarky at him. He essentially says, I know. I mean, he says, there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mothers, father, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time. That I'm sure there were people in that crowd, and I'm sure there are some people in this crowd that you, you look at this and you go, I've given it up. I have sacrificed. I have suffered. And Jesus will look at us and say, I know. And I'm still better than anything else. You have me in this age with persecutions. That this is our, some of us, this is our story. You've lost family. You've had your job threatened. You've, you've, you've sacrificed but you know what the coolest thing about this? Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. I didn't read these verses at the beginning, but look at Mark 10, 33. He tells them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do what? To give everything up. He's laying it all down. The Son of Man, the one who has wealth, power. He's the, the king. He has all power and dominions for eternity. He's going to Jerusalem to lay it 
all down. God himself, the king, is going to die. Jesus is the real rich young ruler who did lay it all down, who did give it all up for you and for me. And so Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he has not done himself. He isn't asking this guy to do anything that he does not intend to do himself. That he's the rich young ruler who laid down his life for us. I encourage you to go read Philippians 2 in a moment. That he became obedient even to the point of death. He humbled himself on a cross, the rich young ruler. 